Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and episode 25 of The Forgotten Victims. Now, before I dive in, I'm going to give the usual heads up that the content and information that you're going to hear may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators, and their behavior at real crime scenes. And there are going to be some graphic details throughout. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Well, this has to be the most requested episode. I received a lot of messages at the start of the Forgotten Victims series requesting that I profile PS. Now, I understand why people are interested in this. But really, it's not the only thing that matters. And the title of the series gives you a clue about whose voices I'm censoring and amplifying, right? And also, it's not the way criminal behavioural analysis works, or I work. And I'm staying true to the process as much as I can. And as you know by now, I put the victims at the centre of all of the work that I do, and this is no different. My work always starts with analysing the crime and the victimology. If we look at how the crime was committed, that leads us to why the crime was committed, and that takes us to who committed the crime. And I wanted to start at the very beginning of this case, the facts and the evidence of what was known at the time, and strip everything else away. And throughout my reinvestigation, I've learned so much more than I ever knew before about the victims, the case, the police investigation and decision-making, the reviews, and about PS. And I've been treading a very careful balance throughout, as I've been really conscious that I don't want PS to overshadow the victims. Historically, this has happened across the last four decades, and everyone knows his name and his horrific moniker, but not one person that I asked previously could name the victims. People seem to be obsessed with PS and with serial killers in general. Some even have T-shirts with serial killers' faces on them and mugs and so forth. And of course, there are others who write prolifically to serial killers, who declare their undying love for them and even want to marry them. And I've often been asked my thoughts about women who are termed groupies or fans, in inverted commas, of killers and serial killers. Well, I will say this. In my experience, many of the women who behave like that have experienced abuse of some description in their past. Others may want the notoriety that it brings, while some may think that they're the ones to change them. But in my experience, the bulk of the fans, in inverted commas, who want to marry and who write prolifically to these men have experienced abuse and they have complex trauma in their background. But I also believe that the blowing up of the true crime genre and so many documentaries that are being made and titled using the killer's name or their moniker only further compounds this. It gives the killers celebrity status. It feeds their narcissism. And of course, for many, this is exactly what they seek. They want to be someone, to be made to look and sound much more interesting than they are, to feel important. And a large number of them really play up to this. Now, here's a key example of what I'm talking about. One of the images I saw on the internet when researching this case was of P.S. in Broadmoor, meeting Frank Bruno and Jimmy Savile, which made my skin crawl, quite frankly, and made me incredibly angry. Now, let me tell you why. And by the way, the picture was taken before the big expose of Jimmy Savile. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Jimmy Savile was a big star in the UK. He was a DJ, host of Top of the Pops, and he had his own show called Jim Will Fix It. The premise of the show was that children would write into him and he'd make their dreams come true. But first, it would involve them sitting on his lap. 
Now, I remember this vividly as a child, and I always felt really uncomfortable and repelled by him, even from a very young age. And much of his behaviour was in plain sight. Well, we've seen that many times before. But despite the fact that there were numerous reports to various police services, no one police service joined up his prolific serial offending history. Sound familiar? Well, Jimmy Savile was suspected of abusing more than 500 vulnerable victims, some as young as two years old. And perhaps that's an episode for another time if you'd be interested in me deconstructing and analysing Jimmy Savile. Let me know. But circling back to the point I was making, in the picture, Frank Bruno, the boxer, was shaking hands with P.S. That's why I was repelled. Well, Frank Bruno later said that he was set up by Jimmy Savile, who was his mentor at the time. And he'd said that he didn't know who P.S. was. But it's strange to me that the cameras were there at the time and they snapped the picture, although he did go there to open a gym. And secondly, it's the point that none of the survivors or victims' families are or were shaking hands with celebrities. I have to say, why is it that P.S. or any other perpetrator should get that privilege? And let's not forget, those were the hands that brutally took so many lives and harmed many more women. Why would anyone want to shake his hand? It just makes me angry that he gets rewarded and gets given an opportunity like this to meet Frank Bruno. It just should never ever happen, full stop. It sends and is completely the wrong message. And then there's all the stories in the newspapers about him, all the phone calls and attention that he received from the media, all the fan mail, and of course all the documentaries that are made about him, as if he's something or someone special, like he's something extraordinary and worthy of his own TV show, or many TV shows in this case for that matter. And the retelling of the cases through that lens only further compounds the problem, unfortunately. Murder isn't a game, nor is it entertainment. Too often the focus is on the gory, grisly details of the crime itself and or the perpetrator. Ask yourself why. Why is that necessary? As I've proven, it doesn't need to be. It's real lives that are torn apart, and we must remember that. Some family members and friends have a life sentence, and not because of anything they've chosen or done. And so please think next time when you joke about what your favourite murder is, in inverted commas, or if you chat with your friends about real crime podcasts and documentaries, just remember the victims and their families and how it might feel for them. I mean, imagine if it were your family member or loved one. Step into their shoes. Imagine the killer being glorified, sensationalised, being the subject of multiple TV shows and podcasts, and no mention of your sister or friend, or worse yet, the victim actually being blamed. Imagine if you overheard the conversation. Imagine how that would make you feel. And so I've actively pushed back against this my entire career and continue to hold the line. It's the reason why I focus on the learning about him in one episode, which I've now actually split into two, because I'll focus this episode on my analysis of his behaviour from my crime scene assessment and analysis, and in the next, I'll focus on what's actually known about him. And that's the reason why I've spent the last 24 episodes talking about the victims and the case itself. And it's not been without its challenges. And look, every case I worked, and of course running the Homicide Prevention Unit, meant that I extrapolated the learning about the perpetrators. But all of my presentations, and when I'm teaching, every case study I talk about, the learners see pictures of the victims, and not the perpetrator. I talk about the victims first. The case is named by the victim, not the perpetrator. I really want everyone to honour and remember the victims, to see a picture of them, to see their face so that they're humanised, and they picture the victim every time the case is spoken about. And I've had heated discussions with key people I respect about crime analysts in this series, people who've told me they respect what I'm doing, but they say I should be using the serial killer's name and moniker to help with recognition of the case, to drive traffic, and also help with the SEO, as it will help people find me and boost crime analyst followers. I understand what they're saying, and it does make business sense to grow the podcast, as I want crime analysts to reach as many people as possible. Of course I do. However, I'm going to keep my values in check and my integrity. That's more important to me. Victims and their families have said very clearly that the impact of using the Yorkshire R word is very traumatic for them, 
and I'm going to honour them and continue not to use it. We even wrote to the media in December before the Netflix show dropped and asked for them to stop using the moniker and for Netflix to change the name of the show back to Once Upon a Time in Yorkshire, which is what it was originally called when victims, survivors and families were approached and asked to participate. Most of them agreed to take part on the basis it wasn't named after PS or the Yorkshire R word. And then at last minute, the name was changed. That's not on. So I hope you explain to others why it's important not to use the moniker in this case and in others. And I've held the line on this despite the challenges and negative repercussions. And that's also why positive five-star reviews are so important to me. So please do take two minutes to write one and help others find me so that I, we can educate many more people. And hopefully these horrific monikers and the way cases are framed by the killer will start to become a thing of the past. And it's the victim's legacy that we value and centre in the stories and reports. And you can help with that. As I said before, in terms of the learning, profiling a perpetrator and conducting a psychological autopsy is the right thing to do professionally, along with ensuring that the learning is promulgated. And my work is always about that. It's like a reverse engineering. It's so important, the learning for professionals, but also learning for future would-be victims. Early identification, intervention and prevention is key. But the question, why did he do it? is one question that many ask and are fixated upon. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. A better question to ask is why did PS choose to do what he did? Reframing is often needed when talking about real crime. And I'm going to underline this point again. At no point have I interviewed PS, but what I do know about violence, and in particular predatory violence, is that it is a choice. A choice to use it or not. And motivation is key to understand. What purpose does the violence serve for that person? And so often, unfortunately, the offender is given an out, with popular headlines like... What drove this man to kill? And I've seen that headline time and time again throughout my career, and I've always challenged it. And you should too, because it creates a distorted narrative that's sympathetic to the male killer. And often, excuses are looked for for why he did what he did. The empathy, as I've talked about before, whilst in the same breath looking for all the reasons why she, as it's normally a female victim, why she deserved it. Even when there are mental health issues, and often this is unfortunately used as an excuse, when there are hundreds of thousands of people with the same diagnosis who are not violent and who don't kill, and certainly don't kill over and over and over and over again. Now, as I've said before, victim blame and shame is pervasive across all sections of society, and it's very apparent throughout this case, as I've pointed out in previous episodes. Now, in my experience and what I've seen is that 
It's much easier to look to the victim for answers, particularly if they're female. There's rarely a fear of consequence, and I believe it's a deeply ingrained psychological bias. I've often heard professionals ask a domestic violence victim with an injury, what did you do to get that, rather than who did that to you? That's a really important transition. Who did that to you? It means that you know someone did that to you. Not how did you get that, as in you were active in the process. She did X and then he did Y. It's the same as Mo Lee being asked in hospital what she'd done to deserve the beating. Well, she hadn't done anything at all. But that framing instantly lays blame and responsibility on the victim, as if it's something that she did that caused it, or that she provoked it in some way. It again shows in these short conversations and in these small moments how often women are blamed for male violence. And if the woman or girl reports it, often they're not believed or taken seriously or it's not seen as a priority. And if they don't report it until later, then women are judged for not coming forward earlier. And as I've said before, women just can't win. Everything is weighted against the victim and unfortunately stacked in favour of the male perpetrator. And in case you're wondering, this doesn't hold true when it's a female perpetrator. Often the female is described as being cold-blooded, a cold-blooded killer, that it was premeditated, and that she is or was a psychopath. In fact, the book is often thrown at her, not just in terms of the framing of the crime, but also in terms of the charges and the sentences, which are much more serious and longer than if it were a man who had killed a woman under similar circumstances. And I've been tracking this across my career. Just take the case of Sally Challen, for example, who killed her husband, Richard Challen. Now, there was no question about her killing him. She admitted it. Sally was charged with murder. She was sentenced to 28 years, reduced to 22 on appeal. She wasn't charged with manslaughter, despite having been victimised by Richard from 15 to 56 years of age. In fact, she was told by her male defence team not to, in inverted commas, speak ill of the dead when she brought it up. She was cast as a jealous wife who planned and killed her husband. The evidence of her victimisation was never discussed or introduced at the trial, and the BBC and the media dubbed her the hammer killer in their headlines. Now, I could tell you a lot more about Sally's case, and I will if you would like me to, and I've interviewed her son David, who's been a fantastic advocate for her, and Sally is now released from prison. She actually ended up serving nine years, and she did come out after a successful appeal launched by Harriet Wistridge and other lawyers using the coercive control law. And it's a really interesting case, and I often talk about it in training, particularly regarding coercive control. So I will come back to Sally if you'd like me to, but I would like to just take a moment to compare Sally's case with the case of Natalie Connolly, who was left to bleed out and die at the bottom of the stairs whilst her partner, John Broadhurst, stepped over her body and went to sleep upstairs. Natalie had 40 separate injuries, including a blowout fracture to her left eye, bruising and internal injuries. A bottle of carpet cleaner had been forced into her vagina. John Broadhurst was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to three years and eight months in prison. His legal team argued that Natalie consented and they discussed her sex life in court. Her toxicology was five times over the legal limit and so I'm unsure how she could have consented and I know fully well that she would not have consented to her own death but somehow it appears that his narrative was believed. And horrifically, Natalie's family had to sit through the trial and listen to everything that was said about her sex life. And it was almost like Natalie was being put on trial. And John Broadhurst is now out of prison, having served just 22 months. And he's getting on with his life, whilst Natalie's family, including her young daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, are left devastated and in pieces, trying to find a new way to exist without her. How can that be right? And then there's Meredith Kircher. Now, many people don't know the name Meredith Kircher. Now, Amanda Knox was convicted of Meredith's murder and spent eight years in prison due to the fact that the prosecutor, Mignini, claimed he knew a cold-blooded killer when he saw one. Now, the media played a role led by Nick Pizzi from the Daily Mail, who dubbed her Foxy Noxy and characterised her as a sex-crazed ritualistic killer and had no problem doing so despite the fact there was no credible physical evidence against her. In fact, 
all the forensic evidence implicated Rudy Guede. Rudy Guede was arrested for Meredith Kircher's murder and quietly convicted and fast-tracked through the criminal justice system in Italy with very little fanfare. And often the case is referred to as the Amanda Knox case, which is totally outrageous, and some even still think that she did it, including Meredith's family, which is astounding because all the evidence, well, there were eight key pieces of forensic evidence that were found in the room that Meredith was murdered in, as well as Rudy Guede's semen that was found in Meredith's vaginal cavity. Now, it's a question that I often ask, why did so many people want Amanda Knox to be guilty, and yet they wanted O.J. Simpson to be innocent? I often think about this with cases, and the answer I keep coming back to is that misogyny is rife, and so too is the gender bias and institutionalised sexism. Unfortunately, what I've seen across my career is that men's narratives are believed over women, even if the evidence points in a different direction. But context is everything. And when we place this back in the context of the ecosystem, and that being the patriarchy, it starts to make a bit more sense. And not good sense. Men's narratives have been believed and valued over women since time began. Whether we like it or not, we're all the product of the patriarchy. All of us. Men have always been in power, and we've all been conditioned to some degree to seek power over others, to win at all costs. That has been the dominant narrative, whether we accept it or not. And yes, it is slowly changing in some areas, but we still have a long way to go. Women are still not yet equal in every aspect of life, and anyone who thinks that we are has a distorted perception of reality. And I was one of those women way back when I was at New Scotland Yard, but then over time, a very different picture emerged. And the criminal family and social justice systems are created by men to protect men. And when we see the headlines in the media, well, it makes sense when we understand the majority of crime writers are male. And of course, that carries through to all professions. And so there is a bias and there is a double standard. So look out for it. And so you might be wondering, well, why is this relevant when talking about this case and this episode about PS? Well, we need to understand that this is an important context that is part and parcel of this case, and it's often been overlooked. The senior officers in this case were all older white men. Those leading the reviews of this case, the five reviews that were undertaken, all older white men. Those four psychiatrists assessing PS, all men. Those prosecuting the case, all older white men. The crime reporters reporting on this case, all men. Those who've been writing about this case across the decades, again, all men. And they're all men with a similar profile. And so the lens by which you've read, heard and consumed everything about this case is 99% male. And that's a fact. I always leave a 1%. You see, more recently... There have been more female authors like Carol Ann Lee, who wrote Somebody's Mother and Somebody's Daughter. And I also want to mention Joan Smith's book, Misogynies, which is well worth a read. And there are other women now writing about the case, as well as female documentarians making shows about the case, such as Lisa Williams, who directed and appeared in the three-part The Yorkshire R Files, a very British crime story, which aired on Channel 4 in 2019 and which was nominated for a BAFTA award. So that's all excellent and really positive. The more women writing, talking and creating content through the female lens is really important. But I do want to underline a couple of other important points. You see, Carol Ann Lee's book is well worth a read as it centres the victims and it's well written and more informative than any other text on the case. However, for me, the title is problematic. And here's why. A woman is someone in her own right. The belonging part really bothers me. You see, a woman doesn't belong to someone, not anymore, but she used to. It's why there's a Ms and a Mrs and there's only a Mr. A woman's previous standing was denoted through marriage, make an honest woman of her and taking on her husband's name and identity. And I pronounce you man and wife. He is still the man, the Mr. His identity remains intact. And a woman's value to whom she belongs and her reproductive value well, first she's owned as a daughter, and then she's given away in marriage, and then she's just the wife and mother. 
Like these are her only three currencies and her only worth. Well, no, that's not the case. She is someone, someone who is worthy, someone who is valued, someone in her own right. She is someone. And then there's Lisa Williams's docu-series, which is well worth seeing. But crikey, it has the Yorkshire R word in the title. And there's still a focus on him, as well as only concentrating on the time period, 1975 to 1980, which we know is a distorted narrative. But granted, she did challenge many misconceptions about the case and was respectful to the women in the storytelling, and she did a great job. But back across the last few decades, it really has been men telling the story. And that's what you've consumed. And that's been the dominant narrative. Now, with Crime Analyst, as you know, I'm reinvestigating the case with a female lens and an experienced one, having worked many cases of male violence against women and girls. And I've been conscious at all times of not falling into all the dominant narrative traps and pitfalls and questioning and challenging absolutely everything I thought I knew and understood about this case. It's the reason I chose to speak with Richard McCann first. He's been living this his whole life. I wanted to hear from him first, and I know so many things he said were light bulb moments for you. And you're going to hear from Richard again. And it's also why you're learning about key aspects of the case for the first time, even those of you who lived through this case and know the case well. And many of you have contacted me, and thank you for that. And you've told me that you've learned so much about this case that you never thought possible. Well, I've been right there with you, and I've had just so many mind-blowing and what-the-hell moments. Okay, so staying true to the process, I started with the crime scene analysis and what I learned about the perpetrator through his actions, decisions, choices and behaviour. And so I'm now going to share with you what I learned first off via my behavioural analysis. Now, most of my thoughts and light bulb moments I recorded in my notebook. And I love a mind map, as some of you know. And I wrote some of them up on the whiteboard too in my intelligence cell. And I posted the whiteboard and the intel cell on social media so to new listeners, go and check that out. I wanted to preserve and record my thoughts as and when they happened. And I wanted to form my own thoughts and opinions about the case prior to reading any material or information about him, about PS. You see, I never start with potential suspects or offenders. This just creates a bias and a conflict. And so I've really tried to stay true to my process here. I do also just want to underline that motivation, the motivation of why PS did this, has been at the heart of this case. It was the focus of the criminal trial and also the appeal and thereafter, which I'll talk about. Because again, even after he was convicted, that wasn't the end of it, as most people think. It certainly wasn't the end of it for the victim survivors and their families after PS was convicted. The case has continued on and on and on for many years as PS launched his appeals and continued on a new mission, which was to try and beat the system. And the media continued to contact him thereafter, and he spoke with them, and they would report on him being attacked and so forth. So many things that would lead to a story. And so for the families and survivors, it must just feel never-ending. And even with his death in November 2020, it all started up again. And every time the family see the Yorkshire R word, his name and his picture all over the media. Just imagine how that must feel. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I want to bring together everything that I believed I understood about the case and P.S. from my analysis of the crimes that he committed. Now, those of you who know my work with Jim Clementi, Jim C., you'll know that we always say that everything starts with victimology. So here's Jim C. on behavioral analysis and victimology. Criminal profiling is basically reverse engineering a crime. 
We look at the victimology, the choice of the victims. We look at the crime scene. We look at the organization level and then pre and post defense behavior. And together, all those things tell us the kind of person who committed the crime. Victimology is the study of the victim, their life, their desires, their education, their daily routine. Because an offender picks a particular victim at a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular manner, for a particular purpose. And all those choices leak out information about the offender, about their skills and abilities, about their desires, and they can lead us right back to the offender. So this is what I wrote up on my whiteboard from analysing the crime scenes and also what I wrote in my mind maps. So under my heading victimology, the killer was targeting lone females who were out at night. It's about access, opportunity and availability. Being out alone at night makes women vulnerable to a predatory stalker. He understands vulnerability. Now, remember when I said in episode one, a skilled offender would target a particular victim in a particular location at a particular time for a particular reason. Now, the victims that were identified were aged between 14 to 47 years old. 19 plus were not prostitutes. Tracy Brown was clearly not a prostitute. They're of different ethnic appearances, which is also unusual. This highlights his main criteria for target selection was that they were all women. Some were street smart, not all. Those that were, he managed to persuade to go with him, either in his car or to another location. They didn't feel unsafe being with him. In fact, they felt the opposite. He put them at ease. He would talk to them first. Therefore, he must be unassuming and local. They were much more likely to go willingly with someone local than someone foreign. And victimology-wise, it is possible that the killer may attack men as well as women if things didn't go his way, so that cannot be ruled out. However, in my opinion, the attacks on men would be much more functional in nature. In other words, the killer would unlikely be predatory towards men. In fact, he would most likely be the opposite, particularly towards alpha males, and he'd most likely acquiesce and be a sycophant. However, if angered, and if he felt that someone was weaker than him, he would potentially try and exert power and control and teach them a lesson, but only if he had a weapon to hand, i.e. a hammer. My next heading, modus operandi and decision-making. He's a predatory stalker. He stalks women at night. He most likely watches and stalks women in the daytime too. He's a voyeur and a stalker a watcher of women in target-rich environments, hanging out in red-light districts, watching them in bars and pubs, cruising the roads late at night near clubs and pubs and watching women come out, fantasising about what he's going to do to them. Fantasy plays a key role. He enjoys every moment of the preparatory behaviour. He would most likely approach women and not be threatening in any way towards them. Quite the opposite, in fact. He'd put them at ease. He would derive much pleasure from this, along with the watching and the following. It was all part of it. It would arouse and excite him. It was a game, a challenge. Now you might remember I opined in episode four that he may even say something like, it's not safe for you to be out. Get in my car, I'll give you a lift home. To further lull them into a false sense of security and make it look like he's helping them, coming to their aid. It really wouldn't surprise me if he used a ruse like that, and he'd most likely get a kick out of it. He brought the weapons with him. He was prepared. He knew what he was going to do. The weapons were hammers, a screwdriver and a knife to begin with. The attacks were up close and personal. It was also bloody and wet work. He enjoys this. He'd blitz attack the women from behind when they least expected it. He likes the element of surprise. It makes him feel powerful and superior to them. He would most likely feel gratified, seeing the women dazed and confused and trying to make sense of what was happening. He would most likely talk to them whilst he was attacking them. He would move most of the women to a secondary location because he wanted to spend time with them. He did not want to be interrupted or discovered. He pulled their tops up and bra and exposed their breasts. He would slash their abdomens. He would masturbate, watching them bleeding to death, and some he raped. This is what he's here for. It's instructive that he's sexually aroused through the violence and their pain. 
He doesn't want interaction from them. He wants them silenced so they cannot talk back. He incapacitates them immediately so that they cannot fight back. He's a coward of the highest order. The women never saw it coming. It's not about the kill per se. That's functional. It's about spending time with them afterwards and he would carefully and meticulously place their clothes and boots on or around their body. He would leave some of the victims in shocking positions so that they would be found. The killer intends to shock people and he's putting his work out on display for all to see earlier on and I'm thinking about Wilmer and Emily in particular. There was overkill. There was evidence of more force and violence than what's needed to kill a woman. He stabbed Emily 56 times, and that takes time too. He stamped on her, and he left his boot imprint on her thigh. This was ancillary behaviour and expressive violence. The act of stamping on Emily post-mortem served no purpose other than to show his complete and utter domination and power over her, and his contempt of and for her. He also found a large piece of wood and thrust it against her vagina. These two behaviours are very important to note and understand. These acts reveal his hatred towards what Emily represents. He attacks her womanhood. He hid some of the victims as he got further along his offending career. Initially, he would use a hammer and a screwdriver. These weapons are most likely selected as he'd be able to explain them away if he was caught. It's most likely that he's been questioned before and he knows what works. He knows he needs to evolve and adapt his MO, his modus operandi, so that he doesn't get caught and he will improvise. The unnamed prostitute was attacked using a stone in a sock in 1969 and Yvonne Pearson was bludgeoned to death with a stone the year after Carol Wilkinson. Now I explained in episode 14 that perpetrators will adapt their MO if the opportunity presents itself and the desirability is strong and they will improvise and use whatever is around them or to hand. The more women he attacks, the more he understands and is conscious of the risks of being caught, and he doesn't want to be caught. Noticeably, the perpetrator leaves the scene at the right time. He decamps, which indicates that he's good at judging risk. He is not so lost or caught up in the adrenaline-induced excitement of an attack that he cannot judge risk adequately. He is rational, clear-headed and meticulous, he knows when to leave, and this is an important observation regarding offender decision-making and behaviour. He likes and has his anchor points, areas where he feels most comfortable, but he has lightly travelled to other areas for work or to see family. He knows he needs to distance himself from previous crime scenes and go further afield. Later, he adapts his MO, and he used rope to strangle a number of the victims. This is a conscious decision to mislead the police, such was his desire not to be caught. Now this again further underlines what a waste of time it is or was appealing to him to hand himself in. Okay, so here's my more detailed profile of the killer based on my crime scene analysis. Now in his everyday life, he would most likely be awkward around women. He'd most likely be the quiet, introverted and woman-hating type. His behaviour at the crime scenes revealed that he was not seeking to interact with the women. In fact, the opposite. He would hit them over the head and render them unconscious. He did not want any interaction with them. He most likely masturbates at most scenes, and in some cases he will rape. He doesn't want the victim to be engaged or to participate. He is sexually excited when they're in pain, harmed and immobile. This points to sadism and necrophilia. These paraphilias would have taken years to develop. There's an absence of empathy and compassion. He views women as mere objects for him to vent his anger and frustration on, and he becomes sexually aroused by the violence. He displays a callous disregard for women. He hates women. He was brutal in his actions and unrelenting, and he used excessive violence. Due to the explosion of rage, this is a deep-seated anger and rage, and something that has manifested over many years. He blames women for things that have happened to him. He's angry with women. The need to defile, the wood, the stabbing of the vagina, the bite marks. This is about anger and domination. It's an assault on womankind and womanhood. And he feels no remorse about what he does. He goes out looking for women to watch, to follow, to con and then to hurt. It makes him feel powerful, superior, strong and gives him a sexual high. All the things that he doesn't feel in his daily life. And as a boy, the feelings of inadequacy that have never left him. 
He would most likely come from a home where there was domestic abuse, an alpha male who abused his mum. And rather than hating the alpha male who's caused the abuse and the violence, he blames his mum. Well, women. It's much easier to blame women than it is to confront the problem of violent men. Due to the overkill, many stab wounds far more than needed to kill, there's a deep-seated rage and anger, one that's always just under the surface, and one that can be ignited by a certain look, a certain action or behaviour, and the woman that's the focus of his anger wouldn't even see it as something significant in terms of what they've done or said. But others who may have borne witness to his behaviour and leakage in normal social settings, well, it probably didn't even raise an eyebrow with them or arouse any suspicions in their circles because it was so commonplace. Now, as I've said before, misogyny and sexism has been and still is rife, and he learned his behaviour from social cues from those around him, and that just served to reinforce his misogyny. The attacks on women provided a form of short relief and release for him. He wanted to do it over and over again. He would play it out in his mind over and over again, but there's no substitute for the real thing, despite the risk that this brings of being caught. But for him, the reward outweighed the risk. These are power and control crimes, and he wants to utterly dominate and overpower the women in every way, and in the quickest time possible. As I said in episode 3, understanding the killer's motivation is key. It informs the profile of the type of person you're looking for, as well as future evidence collection strategies at each scene. Now when I talked about leakage, he would most likely say rude or obnoxious things at times to women he came across in pubs or if he'd had a drink. It wasn't uncommon at the time for those sexist and misogynist comments to be made overtly and no one would challenge it. And like I said, it still happens now. He stalks women at night in the areas that he's comfortable in, i.e. he has anchor points there, and he's able to do things at night and questions aren't asked about him at home. Why not? Well, perhaps he is married and his wife just doesn't ask or know where he goes, or perhaps she's too scared to ask. Perhaps he's not married. Perhaps he works night shifts. But his offences in the early hours are most likely when he's on his way home. Due to travel in multiple areas he's comfortable in and the engine oil as well as knowing the back routes, perhaps he's most likely someone who spends a lot of time in a car and drives for a living. His behaviour at the crime scenes reflects a man who is meticulous, intentioned, methodical, controlling and controlled. And he would present like this in his day-to-day life, but he'd be unassuming, quiet and what I would call a smouldering volcano. He isn't an opportunist thief, There were opportunities to take handbags and money, but he didn't. He has a job. He has money. He appears to be well-dressed. Appearance is important to him. He can think quickly on his feet and talk his way out of most situations. He's rational and clear-headed in his decision-making. Remember he told Marilyn Moore his name was Dave and he made out he was friends with two prostitutes. Well, that tells me he's done this before. And he knew the back streets, she said, which again points to him being local. And he narrowly escapes multiple times. He has local knowledge of the area. He's run down the rat runs and the alleyways. He's strategic and highly manipulative. He presents as unassuming, quiet, softly spoken. This killer could blend in. And he didn't just blitz attack women, as I was initially led to believe. And because he seemed so unremarkable and non-threatening... That was, in essence, his secret weapon that made him highly dangerous. He would enjoy the con, the manipulation. He would derive a lot of pleasure from it. Yet he's unremarkable and ordinary in every way. Otherwise, his name would have been called into the police time and time again. And it wasn't. The perpetrator appears to be more reckless attacking young girls at night in densely residential areas, even when he's been seen just before the attack. And I know through my work and experience that perpetrators act out more and more when they're under stress, for example, when they believe that they're going to get caught, or equally when they believe that they're untouchable and above the law as they haven't been caught yet. In each of these scenarios, they can then become more and more reckless, and it's usually this that leads to them being caught. And so to motivation. The attacks are about utter domination, power and control, and they're sexually motivated offences. The perpetrator is prolific, on occasions attacking women within weeks of each other, but most likely days. There's no point appealing to him directly. He doesn't want to be caught. He won't stop until he's stopped. 
Therefore, it's key to be proactive and exploit and maximise all opportunities to identify and arrest him. Geography My advice to the police would have been to concentrate on Manningham, Bradford and Leeds due to the fact the offences were in close proximity. Everything pointed to the fact he's local, including his accent. I talk about this in episodes three and four. And in episode four, I mapped the offences and drew a circle around the Saturday-Sunday A1 offences, Marcella, Irene, Tina, Jane and Maureen, and opined that that's where police should have focused the house-to-house inquiries and traffic stops. Additionally, it would have made sense to focus surveillance work in and around Round Hay Park and the Gaiety Pub, as well as proactive stops of vehicles in the red light areas. Round Hay was used for sex and by prostitutes, and their punters, and there were at least two attacks here, and so it makes sense to start here. And when I added in Anna Rajolsky, Tracy Brown and Olive Smelt's near-miss-to-murder attacks in 1975, just weeks and miles apart, and drew a circle around the attack locations, and start in the centre of the circle for the house-to-house inquiries and traffic stops, and work your way out, while PS's home address and workplace address are just left of centre and they would have knocked on his door. Then when I added the 1969 offence locations and drew a circle around them, PS's home address and workplace address were right in the middle of the circle. And remember, Olive Smelt was attacked just weeks before Tracy Brown in August 1975, and she spoke with the attacker too, and said that he had a local accent and was certainly not Geordie. This point was made in the Byford Report, page 51, which was shared with me. And remember, the 19-year-old unnamed typist who was attacked in 1972, Anna Rajolsky, Tracy Brown and Marcella Claxton, did compile very accurate photo fits, as did Marilyn Moore later in 1977. Now, if they had followed this advice, they would have knocked on his door. And if they had to hand the photo fits, he could have been caught as early as 1972 and or certainly by the end of 1975. Under my heading work, the offender travels by car. He's highly mobile. There are numerous anchor points where he feels comfortable, and the first offences are most likely closest to where he lives and or works. His car and travel are important to him. Perhaps he works in a job where he uses a car or lorry. He's highly mobile, engine oil, boots, and perhaps he's worked in a mortuary or around dead bodies. So vehicles, repeat sightings in red light areas and hotspots, as well as tyre tracks, should be priority lines of inquiries. Description of the perpetrator. He's a white man, 30 to 37 years old, dark hair, beard and moustache, gap between his front teeth. He's smaller in stature, UK size feet, 7 to 8, local accent, polite, softly spoken but higher pitched voice, unassuming, non-threatening and friendly demeanour. Surviving victims' photo fit should be a priority line of inquiry. Previous convictions and intelligence. He most likely have a history of weapons and or violence towards women, known and unknown, including prostitutes, as well as voyeurism, peeping, watching, stalking, hanging around, as well as dangerous driving, parking tickets, speeding, reckless and impulsive traffic offences. But he's most likely not to have convictions for violence towards women, because we know conviction rates are exceptionally poor. He's a highly manipulative, controlling and dangerous individual who will most likely have a history of domestic abuse and coercive control. He'll be polite, unassuming and cooperative on interview. He'll be the polar opposite of what most expect him to be, a monster. He will likely be unremarkable and ordinary. Okay, that's a lot to process and to think about, I know. And so I'm signing off for now. I hope this episode has been interesting and provides further insight into why P.S. chose to do what he did. And I'll share this with you. This has been one of the hardest and most time-consuming episodes. I've had to re-immerse myself in his psychopathology and revisit all my notes, including everything I've said and inferred about P.S., and I've tracked it back to each of the crime scene behaviours that I've detailed in each of the previous episodes. It's been exhausting and draining, and it's dark. The psychopathology is dark, but it's necessary, 
And I've had to track back where and why I opine something important from the crime scene behaviour and include it in this episode. Next week, I'm going to analyse what is actually known about PS and we can contrast and compare what I've said here and across the series. And I'll also get into whether PS was a psychopath using the Psychopathy Checklist Revisited, the PCLR. And so until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood.